What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined by my trusty co-host Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, what's going on, man? Blackpink coming back, baby. Born pink. September. We don't know what day, but excited to talk about that. And we're going to talk about some other K-pop groups. I like less than Blackpink in a little bit. <laughs> uh well i mean it's hard to like many k-pop groups as much as <laughs> blackpink because they're just excellent but k-pop just absolutely dominating if you saw any of j-hope's uh fandom yeah. this weekend at Lollapalooza, uh pretty unreal <laughs> the, the sites and people lining up like 12 hours before to see him it's just nuts so hobie palooza uh, baby <laughs> <laughs> we're we're gonna be talking about that soon but if you uh, if you like listening to all of the stuff you like talking about, such as uh, Batgirl or uh, Paper Girls or some girls who dropped albums this weekend, hit that subscribe on YouTube.com slash NostalgiaPod. Uh, we're, we're team girls, I guess, out here. But we uh, we wanted to start with Batgirl because there was some some news that dropped right before we started recording that the uh, DCU. <laughs> Uh, DC Comics, which has been developing a, I guess, like small screen Batgirl movie planned to be dropped on HBO Max. Just they decided. Yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty much already done, has been, you know, delayed a few times because of uh, COVID and a couple other production issues. $90 million down the drain. They're like, eh, this, this movie just doesn't work. We're going to scrap this. What? Yeah. What? <laughs> Dave. Can you make sense of this for me? Well, we know since Warner Brothers came under new management with the merger with Discovery, new new leadership at the top, David Zaslav, has been making changes about how they do business. You know, the J.J. Abrams uh, thing did not come to fruition due to its price tag. Um, certain things got canceled, you know, Made for Love, for example, on HBO Max. The belt is being tightened. And they said that the uh, blockbuster on streaming strategy is not a model that they're going to continue. It doesn't work, you know, which honestly makes some sense. You make these big, expensive movies, put them in the theaters, get some money back. We've always talked about the questionable economics of expensive movies somehow justifying their costs solely through streaming. You know, it's this weird calculus. It doesn't really make any sense. That being said, you already made this Batgirl movie. Why are you shelving it? I don't understand. It's like you already spent the $90 million. Yes, that's too expensive moving forward. But right now, you already have this movie you made. Why not put it out? Okay, you don't want to spend money marketing it? You really just want to write this off? It, it just, it just seems, seems strange, especially for you know the DC strategy, which has been more or less to take cool ideas and, and just make stuff and don't really worry about some, you know, ham-fisting continuity. I mean, you have Leslie Grace, you know, after In the Heights, obviously her strong music career, cast as Batgirl, sounded pretty fun casting. Michael Keaton back as Batman in this, like he will be in The Flash as well. Directed by um, Dylan Bilal, you know, who did Bad Boys 3, did some Miss Marvel, like you know, in-demand rising directors. I, I, it, it just seems like a weird call, a w- weird, weird move. And like, I think some people are trying to rationalize it as like, 
maybe it's just really bad and they don't want to sully the brand and spend any more money. But I just have a sully hard time. Brand. I have a hard time believing that, you know, it's like, it, it, you know, Sony can put out like Venom 2 and make yeah, tons exactly. of money and not worry about how it's received. Like Batgirl is going to be successful. I, I, I just, it's just odd. You know, I like, I understand they're going to, they have a new strategy about how they're going to go about greenlighting projects and funding stuff. Cool. But this is already paid for. Yeah. And you just can't, you can't rationalize to me that the write-off is somehow more valuable to them than adding something new to the DCEU because they don't make movies as quickly as Marvel does. You might as well put some of these things out when you, you have it in front of you. I don't get it. Yeah. You know, the, the Sully the Brand thing is funny because it, when one of your better movies, Aquaman, can be put out with something we've talked about a lot, but some of the worst CGI at certain points that we've seen in a major film like this, it's like, what is the brand that you're really like working towards here? Now, I, I do have one theory, a bit of a conspiracy theory. Uh, DC, obviously known for having a rabid fan base. Uh, and the Snyder Cut is the best example of this. You know, people wanting mm-hmm. to see the movies and the way that they're made. Do you think this is like a like a sly play to get that fan base riled up again to get some momentum behind this thing? Oh my gosh. I, I don't know, man, because those fans have open distrust of Warner Brothers through several administrations, several <laughs> turns of management for many reasons, you know? Um, they never made a second Superman movie, for example, you know? There's there's mm-hmm. lots of things that just never happened and piss people off for hardcore fans anyway. So but th- this is just like a, a strictly business move that just doesn't make rational sense to me. I don't quite get it, you know? Meanwhile... Probably full steam ahead with the Flash coming out, despite the myriad issues with Ezra Miller's uh, life and uh, public persona and things of that nature. But that was a movie that was always going to come out in theaters, so we can fit it in the budget. You know, it's it's just strange to me. I don't get it. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me either. Um, I, I guess also, like in the scheme of things, like how much more money is it going to cost to finish this at this point? You know, it's not totally shot. They have a few more things that they have to like wrap up supposedly, and they're saying that they just can't make it work. Right? That's what they keep saying. We just can't make the movie make sense. Uh, like, uh, is it going to cost another twenty million? Like, you're ninety million down the drain. Is it really going to be that big of a difference between one hundred and ten million and ninety million at this point? Like, that's dropping the bucket in a lot of senses for these. Yeah, and then again, just put it on HBO Max so you can only you can self advertise it, you know, and do mm-hmm. like I don't know, a really really modest P and A. You know, it's like yeah, uh, I don't know. I mean, you you already have in a sense a bit of a fan base expectation that something would be there on streaming because that's where Snyder Cut, of course, uh, mm-hmm. debuted. They don't want to do that moving forward. Fine, but like, I don't know. I I feel like it's not that crazy of a lift. Just just seems like an odd move to me. Seems like an odd move to me as well. Uh, doesn't really make sense. I I hope we see it eventually. I get the, I I feel like we will, but I just don't know what the what it's gonna look like at that point. So, I hope um, people they, talk, they, man. Start talking. They they the production company has said that Sony has said that they do like the director, they do like the star, they want to keep working with them around Batgirl. So I'm assume we'll see something, but I don't know. Feels like just another weird move for DC. We'll do some reshoots with the Flash, and there'll be a Flashpoint <laughs> moment where we see Leslie Grace's oh Batgirl. <laughs> well, whatever has the Ezra Miller saga ended? Did he like get help finally? Like I don't know. 
I, um, I like there's so many news. headlines it's hard to keep up but um yeah things are starting to go towards a more criminal uh yeah direction unfortunately so um i think that'll that'll be a bigger topic point when it comes point uh, comes yeah. time to promote the flash when you do that without the star of the movie obviously so more to come uh, on that absolutely well we're gonna pivot from dc news to new jeans the k-pop wonderkins who are who just dropped their first ep titled new jeans first ep new jeans uh <laughs> I, I I hate the t- the album title. I wish it was just New Jeans, but it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Um, and they, you know, th- this is a new group. Um, that was uh, put together by BTS's production company, um, uh, Adore from Hybe Group, and they dropped Attention last week. Uh, I I think it was at midnight, and within like fifteen hours, had one point three million views. Mm-hmm. Big big. Fan base for this group. Already. There's a lot of subs on the HYBE YouTube channels because of BTS and also Seventeen. So yeah, uh, this label can uh, introduce somebody with very limited promo, and mm-hmm. next thing you know, they're just a full-on entity. And here they are, a five-member female K-pop group that more or less came out of nowhere to people not in the know, you know, <laughs> and. Um, mm-hmm. I think, I think it is kind of cool to see that, you know, I, I was doing a little bit more reading into like how, um, how that happened and HYBE has many silos as an entertainment company. And we know like big hit music is where BTS of course is from and 17 has their own silo and this new label in the, in the conglomeration adore is where uh, new jeans seem to fit in. And also I think notably that they are kind of the brainchild of, Min Hee Jin, who was the former creative director at SM for many popular uh, blockbuster K-pop groups and had recently moved to HYBE a few years ago. And this seems to be her her uh, her brainchild, you could say. Um, and these five members all seem to come from auditions recently, which makes sense. Pretty traditional way to make a K-pop group. But um, what did you think of the music itself? We got uh, only four songs. And mm-hmm. three of them had been out before uh, the EP itself came out this week with the f- the fourth song, Cookie, coming out along with it. So what did you think of these, these these tracks from a brand new group that is notably uh, younger? These are all these members are all age 14 to 17, all teenagers here. Little, yep. uh, definitely brand new. I think um, I think there's a lot of potential. <laughs> this is me doing like, like the, the shit sandwich, right? A lot of potential for this group. I think there's a couple of songs that I like more than others. I think attention is a clear standout, but um, I just think overall, this is all pretty half-baked in my opinion. It's just like not super refined. You know, we've been listening to some K-pop records recently that just are so much more interesting production wise and so much more ear grabbing. We're going to be talking about one in a second that I don't even know if I liked more necessarily than this music, but at least was more attention grabbing than what we got here. It all just felt pretty bland to me what did you think about this first ep yeah you know i thought attention is definitely my favorite song as well it has that light that summary aesthetic feeling you watch the music video the dancing actually looks pretty effortless uh, you know yeah who knows maybe they're gonna have a long a long career here you know despite a 
kind of odd name, odd concept, you know, a new <laughs> pair of jeans, don't be blue. It's like, you can write it. I don't know if you can say it, you know, to quote. <laughs> well, apparently this. they're also trying to be as big as the gene, you know, like this amazing invention. And it's like, oh, I don't know if I ever would have made that connection I mean, unless you said it. It's kind of weird to put that much pressure on your your teenage group when you're yeah. also the label that has fucking BTS. Right. Band in <laughs> the world, one of the biggest bands ever, you know? Yeah. Regardless. Yeah, I thought attention w- was my favorite, but like the lightness and the summaryness also just kind of pales in comparison to more veteran release where we heard Nyon's solo debut early this mm-hmm. year, which obviously she has a long career in twice to this point, but that was like really uh, catching from the performance side of things alongside that production. Whereas I don't know if the performances really shine too much on any of these new jeans songs. It's really more about the production. You go on to Hype Boy, which I do see myself as something of a hype boy myself, but <laughs> not exactly a song that like the performance is not that interesting. It's the production that's interesting because it's, you know, a cool match of like house music and, and uh, reggaeton. What's it's called, like Mamba tone or something. I forgot, I forgot the name. Um, yep. And that that's cool. I don't really hear that too much in all the K-pop music I listen to, but like, you know, I think apart from the, uh, the chorus, and the general tempo of the song is not a whole lot to it either. Yeah, you know, I Hype Boy didn't really catch my ear. I think the other song on here that really caught my ear was Hurt, mostly because of just the the way that they sang that song. You know, that hook, I don't want to be the one to get hurt. It's just like so catchy. Uh, and that, like that, that's the sort of thing where I'm like, even though the production is pretty like easy listening, you know, like, really like lo-fi hop uh hip-hop type of sound mm-hmm. it does feel like there's potential for that sort of hook and that sort of like sticky songwriting to be something where we're going to just hear better things from them and again like you said they're very young so i think uh if this is if we're taking a few of these songs out and we're like there's there's potential here this is just the first thing we're going to be hearing much much better down the road totally yeah and then um cookie there's a I, I can't really speak to the size of this but there was some backlash to the lyrics of cookie which um it, it's song it's sung mainly in korean but if you read the meaning uh it, it seems a bit suggestive a bit innuendo filled which these are not songs that the, these women wrote themselves and they all are minor still so mm-hmm. big questionable you hope the uh, k-pop industry doesn't swallow these women up at such a young age we only can hope but um yeah i'm curious to see how quickly they get um pushed forward you know and like when, when the next drop comes out you know you've we've seen all kinds of things where people where art groups really slow play it right blackpink very famously but then other other acts ep after ep comes out and then they just keep getting that momentum so mm-hmm. it's, it's hard to really know because they've only been an entity for like two and a half weeks you know yeah yeah it's hard to say but i think there's a lot of potential here i also think the singing just is really strong like they have yeah. really great voices so uh, there's there's a lot here it's just not yeah. refined yet so better things to come for new jeans a group will be keeping track of as they go um but why don't we stay in the k-pop realm and talk about ats mm. dropping their newest uh i guess this is an ep technically yes. right uh, their ninth EP, Korean EP <laughs> overall, 
first release of 2022. And ATs is the first group we're talking about from KQ Entertainment, one of those smaller K-pop labels, not one of those big four. And they're really the, the marquee act for KQ Entertainment, one of their mm-hmm. their biggest group by far. So this is our first time uh, talking about them, a eight-piece boy group that debuted back in 2018. Again, this is their ninth EP. There's a lot of material out there. And they've toured in the U.S. before. They had a world tour coming up later in the year. Experienced group. Um, yep. But not nearly as uh, famous, of course, as the more you know, uh, noteworthy boy groups, obviously, in K-pop. But uh, yeah, what did you think of uh, ATs? This was my first time really diving into them. I know the name for a little bit. But what did you think of uh, this this quick EP, which has a crazy name, by the way? What is the name of this EP? <laughs> the World EP1 Movement. Uh, yeah, they they have a lot of interesting names. Zero Fever Epilogue, Zero Fever Part right. Two, like so uh, all these trilogies and like like series yeah. of projects in succession. The way the way I understand it, but yeah, what do you think of this this latest entry, which is like the start of a new creative era? Yeah, like, uh, same same as you. This is my first time really diving into their music. I was really struck by just how many similarities I heard to or how much i heard them trying to be like some artists from the united states like it, mm. it felt very heavily influenced by a lot of the weekend's most recent stuff it felt like uh-huh. um which dawn fm you say yeah dawn fm but just like that even like uh some of that stuff he's doing before that where it's like this like housey trancey like mm-hmm. sing-songy kind of leaning into rap at points uh and i, I thought it worked it's like varying effect um you know, there were a few songs on here. I really was like, this is interesting. I just also don't think the music that they're making on here with this really like overproduced EDM is really like in my zone of like enjoyable music. So I was like, uh, I think there's some good stuff here, but it's just not really for me. And even if you look at some of these names like Cyberpunk or like Gorilla, it's like they're definitely going for like a certain type of like per- like persona or like feeling to this. Yeah. But I just don't know if it really jived with me. What about you? Yeah, I'd say cyberpunk definitely uh, aptly named. Very bass yeah. heavy, crazy drums on that one. Um, even the beginning, propaganda, uh, which is really just an intro track. It starts out l- like it's the soundtrack to Tron, and then towards the yeah. end there, these crazy electric guitars come out of nowhere, and I'm like, holy shit, this is really cool. You don't hear like big guitars on mm-hmm. K-pop all that often. But then those guitars don't really come back too much on the rest of the EP, which disappointed me. Um, my, my favorite song by far was the the lead single with the video, Gorilla, just because that's like a true bona fide K-pop rap song. They are really mm-hmm. going for it. The energy is high. The flow, I think, is pretty good on that. And the hook, I think, just has like really big energy. Um, you know, but th- there's, there is a really bass-heavy electronic production underneath all of that, you know? Um, I think that's where it works the best. Some of the other songs, though, I don't like quite as much. Yeah, I, I think um, Cyberpunk actually is one of the tracks that probably stood out to me most, just in terms of like pure enjoyability. Mm-hmm. Um, it is definitely crazy, but I really like the way that they kind of like ride the flow on that, and like it like builds up so quickly, and then will like drop out, but just build up like right away again. It's like very propulsive the song for sure 
Um, and I also liked the do 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 very catchy around the the chorus, even though obviously I I didn't understand the words um, or what they were singing about. Um, yeah, and then like kind of looking like just through here, like I feel like each song had like interesting aspects to it, like where do i go is just so like trappy sounding like mm, like yeah. it sounds almost kind of like skrillex produced in some sense but like uh-huh. I, I don't i just don't know like i just didn't find myself wanting to like run this one back right away it's it's definitely different though which i appreciate because like while you said that um what was it the the ring was it that was the most like gorilla. traditional gorilla mm, sorry yeah. gorilla was the most traditional k-pop sounding rap song um I just feel like I we haven't listened to any other albums like this yet from K-pop. So I was like, oh, ah, yeah. this is I'm glad that they're trying stuff. That's really cool. Totally. Yeah, I think um the last track New World I thought stood out to me as well because um the guitars show up back uh once again there the very last song. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, this sounds really cool. And then you know, they're, they're kind of like singing and rapping over that like heavy production. I think it really works there. And the chorus specifically I think is like really epic cuz it's like it's really being belted out as the guitars mm. are like really going and it's like oh my god this is like an amazing piece of the song by far the best part of the song so like, very cinematic for sure yes exactly exactly very cyberpunk so yeah i mean shout out ATs. i think this is there's just there's definitely intentionality with this you know and like mm-hmm. you know it's it's not exactly my my favorite thing but there is a lot of effort and there is a, lot of, a clear decision to try and make something outside of the mold which i think is really appealing you know and if the rapping is pretty good like it is on gorilla too i do still have some time for it so yeah looking absolutely forward to their next like full-length album you know I'm, I'm you know and i guess the next eps or whatever with this too this new era we'll see if there's a progression to come with their next music yeah i assume we're probably gonna get two more eps so we, we might be talking about them pretty soon uh we're gonna put one of their tracks, probably Gorilla, onto our Nostalgia Best of 2022 playlist. So check that out on Spotify. Give it a follow. But Dave, let's keep it moving to the, uh, I don't know, I don't even know, the the princess, the like the heir apparent to indie pop in, uh, I don't know, the music sphere. Um, Maggie Rogers, the girl wonder. You know, I've already talked about Wonder Kid. We talked about Bat Batgirl. Maggie Rogers kind of been tapped since her time at NYU as like the like next coming of pop since that like viral Pharrell video dropped where he's listening to Alaska, and I guess like folk pop too was kind of like where she was at with uh, heard it in a past life. There was it was very like toned down, stripped back, but still like produced um songs and i i think we both really liked her in the past i felt like there's a lot of potential there haven't really heard a, a proper album from maggie in a while she's dropped some songs here and there and some collections of old tracks she's recorded but we get surrender finally dropping this past friday and boy i love this record i was just totally blown away by what we got here I, it was like completely unexpected this like turn and i was really enthralled by it how'd you feel about what we got on surrender yeah i liked it a lot as well like you said maggie rogers been tapped for success at the very least several years ago now you know she was grammy nominated for best new artist a few grammys ago i think she won, her, right yeah uh, no she didn't win um she didn't win. Her, her in a past life 
came out three and a half years ago. It's a bit of a wait for someone who had all this hype and anticipation and momentum. But I would like to commend her for really honing in on like a musical identity, you know? Cut her hair short, pixie cut is in. And what did she do? She did not go to work with Jack Antonoff like all the other <laughs> female ingenues of pop in the last five years. She did not do that. What an awesome choice. Did she go to another super producer? She did. She went to Kid Harpoon, who obviously was all over the Harry Styles album. Regardless, though, she didn't make an album that sounds like all the other albums. You know, nope. No shots at those women, but I like that she did something different. And not only did she do something different, but what she did was good. So yeah. that that's awesome. You know, um, I wasn't expecting to think back on Alanis Morissette and Fiona Apple while listening mm-hmm. to the second Maggie Ryder's album, but that's what I did. What, yep, a, what, that, a, what a pleasant surprise. Uh, 100% agree. And I, I, I didn't really get Fiona Apple, but now that you say I definitely see a lot of the influence. Alanis definitely came to mind for me, like pure Alanis Morissette influence, but also like Beck and Arcade Fire and even like Dixie Chicks at, at points. And it's like, it, she brought in like real guitars for this. She brought in heavy drum production. She really like pushed her vocals from being this like pretty within like a certain zone, like mm-hmm. on yes. her in a past life to like pushing herself to the extremes at both ends. And I just loved all the chances she took. And she just sounds so much more confident on this record, right? Uh, she spent the pandemic with her family up in Maine, uh, getting a master's in um, divinity from Harvard. And uh, while working on her master's was writing this music. Um, and I-, I think some of the songs are a bit corny and has some, some strange lines to them, but I think other songs are just really well-written and kind of show off her strong lyrical ability. Probably not a perfect record in my opinion, but just completely completely satisfied with everything here and it just actually feels and we talk about at least i talk about this a lot it just feels like maggie kind of unlocked a piece of her artistry that she hadn't really shown before and it it feels like there's a lot more potential to get some really exciting stuff from her in the future so um why don't we dig in more to what we really liked about the album any any songs that jump off right off the bat for you yeah there's a bunch i'd say uh the lead single want want is a good one just a really catchy chorus uh, the drums there, quite noticeable mm-hmm. as well. I think um, there's a lot of really good choruses uh, on yeah. this. I thought uh, Anywhere With You, um, mm-hmm. the emotion really kind of comes out in that chorus. But I think that song, actually, the bridge is like the, 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 the highlight for sure. Uh, Shatter has a huge chorus. Honey, though, might be my favorite chorus because there's like those really long notes for Maggie like um, as she sings that really brought me back to like Avril Lavigne, her early yeah. stuff. And it's it just cool to feel those, hear those touch points going through the album. But um, even I've Got a Friend, which is an acoustic track, that also has a pretty strong chorus. It really feels yep. like the choruses to me um, stood out. And, you know, shout out Maggie for co-writing all these songs with Kate Harpoon, as well as co-producing all of them. Really much, very much in control of this album. And, to have this many like I think really sticky choruses that don't all sound the same I think is mm-hmm. quite commendable. Yeah, you know, Honey is uh, I'm really glad you pointed that one out. Like the Avril Lavigne like Alanis of it all, it really comes through in that song. Not only those like really long 
uh, notes that she holds around the chorus, but the way that she sings them, she's almost like screeching kind of in them. And she has this like almost like new order, like like drum production on that, where it's just kind of like swirling underneath everything. Uh, really, really cool. Want Want um, actually reminded me a lot of Beck. Uh, the song Eep Pro, which was a single off one of his, uh, I forget which album it was back in 2006. I forget the name of it, but um, just like a, that like purring like guitar at the beginning of it that kind of just continues through and drives the song is great. And so often I found myself just being like, ah, you know, Maggie's going to definitely end this song in just kind of like some like nice way. And she just usually like goes to like a little bridge and then builds right back up to this really like driving ending to a lot of these songs, which I really, really loved. Um, yeah, you hit on most of my, my favorites there, but I really don't know if there's like a track I like dislike on here. Um, I guess maybe songs like Begging for Rain are like, some of my least favorites just because they're a little bit more toned back um you know a little bit more of her like her in a past life type maggie but man I, I don't know there's a lot of great stuff symphony might be some of her best songwriting on this whole thing and it's not even a track i found myself going back to a lot just really really strong um shout out to florence welch singing backup vocals for her on shatter i mean it's a great look right there you know qualified for sure <laughs> for sure <laughs> um yeah what'd you think of be cool uh i don't really remember much about be cool what's it's, to you about that one so yeah the i didn't mean to put you on the spot there but it's it's definitely stood out to me just because it's so like it's still drum driven but it's pretty much just the drums and maggie's voice and some synths and she sings it like so beautifully um that like chorus so be cool and i just really like loved her vocal performance on that one um and, then, and I, I was trying to like put my finger on what influence i could hear in that one and it feels like it's like right at top of mind but i just can't unlock it so i was kind of hoping you might have had a comparison <laughs> but we'll, we'll we'll come back to it if we can if we can think of it anything else on this though yeah you, i think you mentioned you mentioned the drums on this thing shatter the snares sound really good on that one mm-hmm. up-tempo song in general. One of the more up-tempo songs she has here. Um, yeah, you know, I think overall, the production, the instrumentation probably grabs me more, and her performance itself probably grabs me more than the lyrics themselves. And that was also the case with her in the past life, a, an album that I didn't think had much fat or filler on it at all. It's just really cool to see her basically do the same kind of thing just with a completely different sound, you know? Yeah. I mean, she seems so confident on this. I'd have to imagine this is the kind of lane she feels most uh, inspired to, you know? Then again, Mm -hmm. the kind of raw emotion that a lot of these songs have also directly feel like they came out of a COVID creation. So maybe this is just a moment in time for Maggie, TBD, only 28. So we'll uh, hopefully the next album is in uh, three and a half years from now. Little sooner, yeah. but um, either way, definitely uh, making good on all the hype that she had in 2016. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
I think maybe just the last time I wanted to highlight before we wrap up is that's where I am. Cause that really feels like the, a, a great bridge. If you really liked old Maggie rot, like the stuff on her in a past life, old Maggie Rogers heard it in a past life three years ago and current uh, Maggie uh, album on surrender. That's like the bridge to me. Cause there's so much of that production where it's like clicks and just kind of like pulling sounds in, pulling them back out really quickly, but it really uses some of that new production that heavier drum that heavier guitar and allows her to just like use everything that she does well to uh really make a great song so um definitely recommend this we're putting a song or two on our nostalgia best of 2022 but dave most artists that were going to drop albums this weekend are the Maggie rogers cleared out for the queen <laughs> and beyonce whenever she drops an album the world stops but usually she doesn't tell us about it usually she just drops it it lets us make sense of it. Uh, she made us. She made it known that Renaissance was coming. We got. A, we got at least one single. I think we might have gotten two, but at least we got one. Um, her seventh solo album, Act One of a trilogy. Is this the album of the year? Renaissance is fucking amazing, dude. <laughs> yeah, dude. <laughs> Beyonce smashed it, dude. Yeah. Uh, did not expect it to be so layered have so many reference points so referential and and reverent to its influences in the way it is but it it very it very well could be the career highlight of beyonce as well which is quite the statement quite the accomplishment for an artist who made lemonade you know which is just just like amazing personal uh, uh tome statement you know uh, Renaissance is it, it's not as overtly um, political as some of her recent stuff, you know. Um, mm-hmm. You know, think of like Blackest King, and um, you know her performances at like Coachella and and things like that. She's seems to have, I think, kind of dialed back into a more specific cultural uh, point here. It's not that it's not political; it's just it's uh, more subtextual now, mm-hmm. and. Yeah, I mean, I was just kind of really blown away with just how many of these songs I think are just really awesome to revisit, but still fit into this amazing, like, painting that she's delivered. And yeah, it's also wild that this is her first traditional album rollout since 4 came out in 2011. Break My Soul, a traditional single, came out over a month ago. Um, so good. You know, she, she joined TikTok. Uh, <laughs> it's just, it's cool that Beyonce switched up how she's doing things but then when you actually go to the music and like oh wait no she's still fucking running shit dude like it, it, yeah. it, it it's a really impressive album yeah there was a story going around that i don't quite believe but drake is uh i think giving a credit on one of these songs i don't remember which one and supposedly when he it's went a lot to of go credits, so yeah oh he does have a few credits i guess but when he went to go like work on this with beyonce he like heard what she was working on and that's when he supposedly named his album uh honestly never mind because I, apparently the story goes he heard what beyonce was working on was like i can't compare to this and obviously making a similar like dance uh album uh this just blows his out of the water um and so you drake know is, drake is credited on heated as his boy one heated gotcha um so it's i think when it, whether that story is true or not i'd like to believe it is i don't really think it is though um it is just a testament to just how amazing of an of a job beyonce did here 
just taking a sound that she never has really even dabbled in all that much. Obviously, she's made some like tracks that have dancier uh, sound to it, dancier elements, but this is a pure dance homage to so many different elements and styles of dance music. You, you know, you got disco, you have like classic EDM and pop, you have more like grimy sounding dance near like the end of the album, more rap infused. It's really impressive and she kills it. I saw another person talking about how like she's only got a few features on this. She has a ton of samples, a bunch of like uh, high level producers working with her on this, but it almost feels like there's like multiple Beyonce's on this album because she's just constantly changing her voice, changing the way that she's singing or delivering or even uh, going about like uh, rapping at points. And it's just really, really impressive to see her kind of mold this all together and create an album that, even when you have listened to a song numerous times, it feels like it always takes you in a new direction. And it's just always like, how the hell did she conceptualize this? It's just really, really impressive. Uh, Blown away to say the least. Yeah. And I mean, a lot's been said before Drake, but especially since Drake released on us, nevermind where the, you know, desire for people to listen to dance music at this time, a uh, feeling of returning to the club and having a collective experience mm. hasn't happened in a long time. Feels like a, you know, a, a natural product of the pandemic. And like, this is like this, the expression in this way. But I think Beyonce takes it even a step further beyond just our current time, because this this album is so indebted to just the really grand, and long tradition of queer uh, culture and community that has been fostered in dance halls for decades. And there's a long history of divas and icons being these huge touch points and uh, rallying points as artists for people in the queer community, you know, dating back again decades you know ever since you know diana ross for example kind of becoming a a gay icon and helping people get through the aids crisis through her music when she started writing music more directed to these fans of hers right beyonce is taking all of that in and paying direct homage and, and paying people that she's sampling or working with that are from these communities as well not famous artists at, at that and i think kind of bringing it all together you know it's really cool to see an artist, a Beyonce stature, Beyonce's fame, Beyonce's wealth, still have so much tact and reverence for this specific community that is a part of her success and career. But she actually put in the work to like show that love and um, be really, I think, genuine in her appreciation for is very very music like you said we're talking about many genres right now but you know I, I think that's really where like the subtext of this music comes from where again it's not as in your face as like formation when she performs at the super bowl but mm-hmm. it's not that it has any less meaning it's just a different different way to understand and hear that message you know yeah I, she might be one of the most thoughtful uh artists in terms of conceptualizing the story that she wants to tell with her art um you know, some of her recent work, um, you know, you think about Lemonade, like you talked about, perhaps one of the most thoughtful uh, albums talking about 
a very public uh, issue with her husband that, uh, you know, very easily could have been made in, into a just a pure breakup album or like a I hate my husband type album. But really like beautiful messages about love, uh, black love, but like what it means to forgive, what it means to move forward with someone after they've hurt you. Uh, Homecoming, the live album, the way that she uh, centered that with the an HBCU marching band and really worked in these elements of black culture into this live performance and the video with it and her performance at Co- uh, Coachella, all of it incredible. And then you get this, like you said, just so thoughtful towards the LGBTQ community and the these people who have been allies or been within the community and the art that they've made to help them or support them. It's just really wonderful and just elevates her beyond this person who makes amazing music, but is also a thoughtful and impressive artist in that sense. You know, there's so much to like here. You mentioned the single Break My Soul. I think that's a clear one of my favorites. It's also a bit cheating when you sample, um, you know, uh, Show Me Love and uh, Explode on that one as well as a nice sample as well. But um, what are what are some other songs on this that you just immediately immediately loved on first listen? Yeah, well, it is it is funny to like. When, we talked about this when people thought this when Break My Soul came out over a month ago, but like it's just so funny to hear our, the Robin S. Show Me Love sample again after we just heard Charlie XCX do yeah. it on uh, You Used to Know Me just a few months ago. But I, was, I actually looked into it more. That uh, Robin S. song, specifically the, uh, the remix that is uh, the most famous version of it, that has actually been officially sampled like over a hundred times. It, it, yeah, it's just an amazing simple line at the end. It's incredible. Day. People know this stuff. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, Break My Soul, uh, great choice for a single. It's mm-hmm. uh, currently at number seven on Billboard. And think about it, Beyonce actually hasn't had a number one single since Single Ladies back in 2008, <laughs> a solo number one. Uh, I think Break My Soul perhaps could get there next week mm-hmm. following this album coming out. I would certainly root for that. She deserves it. Uh, for me, though, my, my obvious highlight is, is Cuff It. I think that that song is so fucking good. But, I, mean, I liked a ton of these songs, really. Yeah, Cuff It is really strong. What did you like about it? I mean, that's got a real like disco-y feel to me. Exactly. Yeah, I think it, it's just a imminently danceable disco song. You know, the horns come mm-hmm. in there, but there's like these, just so many flourishes throughout the song. You know, like there's times where the background vocals come in and they harmonize with Beyonce. It sounds really good. Then like verse mm-hmm. three, she's kind of doing like a hip-hop cadence, you know? Uh, got me acting hella thotty. Like it's... <laughs> It's fucking really good. I think it's it's just really catchy song, uh, and like really uplifting. You know, it's like it's kind of like exactly what she's going for with this album overall as a song like that. You know, and I think that clearly could be like a wedding staple. A song like that. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I, I I immediately loved Cuff It. It just makes you want to move. And like you said, there's some flourishes. There's like a way that they toned the bass on that one, where it sounds almost just like surreal. Like it's just like this like wiggle. It's really strange, but I love it. Um, my my immediate like favorite track listening through was Virgo's Groove, which is kind of similar, but just like it's just this like pulsating disco jam. Bit more that, funky. yes very funk and it like just continues to build and become more and more intense and like the guitar you think is gonna like give you a break at some point and then the last like minute or so just like beyonce just like 
showing out with her vocals dude and she's harmonizing with those backup singers it's just like pure perfection is that everything i was hoping to get out of an album once i knew what what the general vibe was um what other tracks do you like yep i liked uh, church girl i think uh speaking of samples and again you, you really should just read a guide about the samples there are so many there's so yes. many reference points and influences on this but also direct samples one of them is on trigger man which uh, on church girl which would be trigger man another one of the most famous and often sampled songs this case it's more about touchdown from southern hip-hop but church girl is really funny because you have like the gospel coming in you have the lyrics but it's a bit more ratchet than you expect and <laughs> she gets in ratchet general, on this album this is a, a hornier more overtly sexual beyonce yes. album lyrically than we've gotten perhaps ever you know um i like that one and then there's just there's just so many songs like i think cozy is an awesome club song uh pure pure honey another one you know the more 90s mm-hmm. uh sample there uh summer renaissance another disco jam like you mentioned virgo's groove um you have uh, energy which was in the news for the kellis sample that kellis didn't approve of but mm-hmm. um, i think that one to cuff it into energy transition sounds really good um alien superstar is another one that i enjoyed yeah grace jones is actually featured on this and she's clearly a reference point for some of the other songs that precede it uh shout out thames being featured here as well having that big song with drake in future now on the beyonce album her debut album is hotly anticipated to say the least you know yep it's uh it's just really impressive (laughs) you know you you hit most of the songs i like the most i think probably pure honey was one of my other like standouts on this but like I think what I really love about that and what it encapsulates so well is with so many of these tracks, it takes you in so many different directions. You know, Pure Honey kind of starts off as this like really, like you said, like horny, but just like, I don't know, slimy type sounding groove. And then halfway through, it just kind of like moves into this like more like, I don't even know, like disco-y, funky, like glimmery type feel, but keeping those same lyrics it's and then she starts singing like she just comes out of nowhere and just is like hitting the high notes and i was just like man i just had no idea where a lot of these songs were gonna go and for them to also have them all flow into each other and feel so cohesive as a work i mean she even like leads you into the album in terms of energy from i'm that girl to cozy which are a little bit more low energy into like alien superstar and cuff it where the energy really gets moving it almost felt like a power hour at at points right this is about an hour long it's just kind of like (laughs) insane how she was able to craft something so layered like you said before so there's a lot on here man really loved it and i thought summer renaissance was a great way to just like hammer home everything supposedly this is the first of a trilogy that we're getting how much screen she put into that yeah well it may not be as traditional as we expect of course you know lemonade had the accompanying film and blackest king and homecoming were more atypical releases as well so i'm sure there is an act two in some fashion whether that means she makes another traditional album in a year or two I'm less sure about that part. What I am sure about is that we are going to have a good old-fashioned Grammy bloodbath next year, Beyonce versus Adele for Album of the Year, among other things, just like the last time they released albums. And uh, 
the discourse will be will be hot for that one. I think we all know that already. Um, yeah, I, I could uh, if I had to like pick right now or like make a guess. I think album of the year feels pretty locked up for Beyonce, but I could see Adele maybe getting a record of the year for like Easy on Me or something like that. Right? That feels like like if we had to split it, let's do that. Yeah, I think so. Beyonce probably will benefit from releasing uh, after. Adele significantly yeah. after, right? Adele basically came out like right the last Grammy. This, this Grammy year. So yep. uh, we'll talk about that more when the nominations talk happens in the fall. But uh, yeah, I mean, this is the first Beyonce solo album since 2016, which means the only two people left on 2016 watch would be Rihanna and Frank Ocean, which it's just been so long for both of them. And there had been rumors of, you know, who can really say how accurate, but there had been rumors that the next Frank ocean album would be dancy as well frank of course has been an admirer and participating in club culture for a while now uh, if if frank gave us a club record of some kind not even necessarily this year but just that's what he did i please man just please do it <laughs> we, we know he has it in him with pyramids so uh would love to hear it don't hold your breath though on either one of those albums uh no, no. i Rihanna actually I was listening on Spotify and after the album wrapped up for Beyonce Rihanna came on um and I was just like man we we need some some more Rihanna music in our lives so love to hear it from her. I don't I would also love her husband to drop some music too yeah I mean, her baby dad whatever I love, would love Rocky <laughs> to drop you know but we'll we'll settle for just Rihanna for now <laughs> um anyways uh follow our nostalgia best of 2022 to keep up to date with all the music that we like we're going to switch gears to TV, where we're talking Paper Girls on Amazon Prime. Uh, Dave, how many episodes did you get to with this? Just the first I couple? I saw the first episode of Paper Girls. Mm-hmm. Season one is out on Prime Video in full right now. The long-awaited Brian K. Vaughn comic adaptation. And we've, we've talked about Brian K. Vaughn before because his other comic series was adapted last year on FX, The Last Man on Earth. So... Uh, first time visiting him he's a very uh, accomplished prolific comic writer but paper girls finally came out after some covid uh, hiccups with production and you've seen more than the first episode correct yeah i've seen uh half the series to this point right and uh i gotta say after the first episode i wasn't totally drawn into paper girls but i wanted to stick with it because i thought there was a lot of potential and you know i think for me you get Ellie Wong right at the beginning of the first episode. And I'm like, huh, I like Ellie Wong. What's going on here? And then pretty quickly we're with the kids and it feels like we're back into like a stranger thing esque type world. Uh, there's so much mystery and unexplained around the first couple of episodes that it's kind of hard to stick with for me. And I also didn't really love being with the kids but once the kids uh, start teaming up with some of the adults and exploring what it means to be uh, going through this time travel um, you know, world, I thought the show started to take off a bit more. So it definitely is a show that picked up for me. There were certainly some points in the last episodes that I saw that I still had was like scratching my head and wasn't totally caught by. Uh, but I, I think there's if you stick with it, you get a little bit more payoff. What do you think after the first episode, though? Yeah, well, I think it um, I think it did a pretty good job at establishing our our core characters here, our paper girls, um, and 
I think it does enough to differentiate itself from the kind of obvious rote comparison that it's like, oh, this is like Stranger Things, you know, female Stranger Things, you know, taking place in 1988. We literally see them all on bikes, you know, Mm -hmm. period setting. But it's not as like overtly uh, referential to retro stuff like Stranger Things. And it's not as, uh, it's not not as like genre heavy, or at least it's just more like strictly sci-fi. There's like not a horror uh, occult element you know, like the Stranger mm-hmm. Things villains aspect. So it's still genre, but I think the, our four paper girls are established, at least, you know, in an archetypal way early on. And it's like, okay, I see what we're doing here, but did you feel like the momentum continued right into episode two? Because it felt like the kind of like strong setup pilot, you established what the show is, this time travel mm-hmm. uh element you know how they're going to get back to their time and they're interfacing with their future selves this future timeline you know yeah do you feel like the momentum continued after that setup or did it kind of grind and get into oh we got eight episodes to fill <laughs> you know uh, i found the least enjoyable part of the show to be the stuff around the like the mystery and the time travel and like who are these people and uh you know as they start to like discuss like what the actual plot is how there's these uh i forgot what they were like the stf who are like in the future but then there's the other more rich people who are trying to stop the stf who are further in the future uh it's time cops yeah the the, it's all very convoluted and i just found that to be so not enjoyable stuff i liked was seeing uh you know ali wong as aaron interacting with child a 13 year old 12 year old Aaron I thought that stuff's really interesting kind of uh seeing these children dealing with themselves or their family members uh in in the future I thought was really interesting and really fun especially um when Mac goes to find her brother um I I, that episode which I think is episode three I just found to be really enjoyable and and uh, I thought Sophia Rosinski was giving a really strong performance in that one but Man, there, there's a there's a CGI moment in uh, I think it's the end of episode four into episode five that I just was like really put off by. I didn't think it was very good at all. And just uh, also like I, I don't want to spoil things for people too much, but like it, it just felt kind of cheesy in a sense. Like I, I don't it probably is true to the comic, but just the way it was executed didn't feel that great. Um I do think Sakai Ebeni, uh, who is adult Tiffany, but I believe is also like the villain in this, is really, uh, <laughs> I think she's really convincing as a villain. And I think a very hateable face. But man, uh, I think if I didn't want to bring the content to the people, I might not have stuck with this show. So I think give it a few episodes, see where you're at after episode three, and then see if you can look past some of the the less fine points of it would be my recommendation. Yep, I hear you. I feel like you, you kind of want to want to do some genre stuff to mm-hmm. watch this right now. I wasn't really necessarily in the mood, you know, it, I think Steppenwall pointed this out where it's like kind of unfortunate that Paper Girls comes out post Stranger Things, even though the comic itself actually predates Stranger Things. Yeah. But it's just, you know, the, um, and the last, uh, why the last man's the same kind of thing where it predated the walking dead, but the walking dead beat it to the screen and the, the, the 
comparison points, the wires get crossed there in terms of how people perceive things. So not necessarily fair to paper girls, but that's just kind of how, how it goes sometimes, I guess. Yep, just how the cookie crumbles, but uh, Paper Girls, maybe a show we'll get back to if it feels worthwhile. I'm not sure, but we are going to be returning to Industry Season 2 dropping. And uh, man, it it's weird. We, we talked about Industry, I guess, just last year, right? Uh, like, or maybe two years ago. Yeah, this is one of those COVID shows where it's like, where was I and how do I know delineate time during this period? But uh it feels like industry is far away and also like just came off the air at the same time. So to have it back, I was like, Oh, this is, this is great. I miss being with these characters. Um, and I thought episode one of season two, the premiere was just really great and set the stage for everything and really is pulling all these characters in different directions. And I'm right back in. What about you? Oh, totally. I was a huge fan of industry season one, uh, which really came out of nowhere as this gem from HBO and BBC. And what, what I think is most appealing about industry with continues from season one is that it's really like atmospheric and absorbing show to be with. And I think the big part of that is be just because, you know, Mickey Down and Conrad K, the creators, are coming from this finance world. And it, it's a show that, through its storytelling, is quite uncompromising. You know, it doesn't take time to expositorily explain the jargon of the finance mm-hmm. and investment banking world. It's quite fast-paced. It's quite uh, uh, high-minded in that regard. But the vibe, the character dynamics, the character motivations, the feelings of the characters are so relatable and understandable that even if this very intricate world is only understandable uh, to a niche uh, audience, you know, by design, most people don't understand the nuances of high high finance. It's okay because the things that are in here, in terms of the stress and the toxicity of the workplace and the balancing of work and uh, fun, you know, the drugs, the sex, everything, like it, it's just a wonderful blend to be with. And I actually love that I don't really know this world because it feels like you're just going on a, a trip and, and, and learning more about it. You know, I think Mayala Harold, who is the plays Harper Stern, our lead protagonist, really stands out as uh, the one kind of guiding us through this world and going through her many ups and downs through season one was quite the trip. You know, um, the, the backstabbing nature of the show, um, I've seen a lot of people doing it. It's like succession meets euphoria. You know, it's not... <laughs> Not quite as cutthroat as Succession, but not that far off. And yep. not as explicit as Euphoria, but not that far off. You know, it makes some sense. No, I think that comparison makes a lot of sense. And yeah, you know, I think what I was just most impressed by as we come back, and obviously it, as season two ends, there's a lot of drama and infighting among of the core characters. Everybody's kind of off in their own directions, but everybody's storyline I just find to be really compelling. Obviously you have Harper, uh, you, you just mentioned Harold's uh, lead performance in this, who's dealing with COVID uh, anxiety, COVID stress, hasn't been back to the office since COVID has been living in this hotel in London um, during this time. And, and the tension that that causes with, uh, was it Ra- Rashi is his name? Um, uh, Rishi. 
Yes. Rishi, Rishi, and uh, some of the other people on the floor. You have Yaz, played by uh, Marisa Bella, who, first of all, like, I, there are actresses sometimes, and, and actors too, who, like, when they're on screen, you just feel, like, sexual tension constantly, and she's able to do that. It's just, like, unbelievable how, like, no matter what's going on on screen, she just is able to, like, deliver so much force through her uh, nonverbal communication. It's unbelievable and, and everything going on with her she seems like a bit lost a bit like uh kind of considering her next options and also dealing with losing this big client feeling uh you know i think anger towards the way that she was treated versus how now the the culture shifted a bit towards some of the newer people in the role right. she was in which i think is really fascinating to see that dynamic and then you got uh bob robert you know right who yeah. is like he last season was like the hot shot, like, you know, up and comer, you know, wanted to like, take over the world. And now he's kind of on like desk, like cold call duty and uh, seeing all these dynamics where all these characters are at. And also obviously all the stuff going on in, in his sex life. And yeah. um, it's just really interesting, really f- fascinating to see them all and, and where they're at. And then, you know, we haven't even talked about Ken Leung who plays Eric in this, but oh, gosh, yeah. I think his performance, you know, you can just kind of see like how he's been muzzled by a lot of the, the abuse he was giving out last season and the way that the companies responded to it. But his performance is just so convincing because you can tell that he's like still got that fire underneath him, still got that dog in him, so to speak. But he is just playing this like manager role now and taking it so seriously and really like putting himself into this other aspect of his career. I just was really like immersed in this whole episode. Totally. You know, I think from a plot perspective, it's cool to see like the, the Pierpoint London office face this kind of existential challenge, existential threat, which is that this guy coming in from New York is going to be on the desk there and basically spying on them, determining what's going on. But also there's just this threat that the London office could be like subsumed or uh, become subservient to new york or even frankfurt they say post-brexit you know (laughs) um that is a cool piece of ongoing tension i like that the show is i think intelligently bringing in post-covid or you know post uh outbreak uh storyline to this uh season you know harper had been working from home much longer than the rest of her colleagues and doing it at a hotel at that and how that leads into everything, you know, we'll see about that. Um, you mentioned Ken Lung. I think the Eric character is so central, I think, to bringing out the high stakes uh, tension and stress that is investment banking and his dynamic with Harper, which is so up and down, uh, is really fascinating. I think it's just, yeah the chemistry between these two performances and you just it's kind of it's the best part about the show you just love being with it uh, yeah, yeah absolutely you, yeah and, and you mentioned yaz and uh robert you know it's cool to see like harper they're directly kind of continuing where they are with the storylines we saw last season you know even though it's been like a year year's time in the show you know we're starting to see issues with yaz's personal life affecting her professional life and mm-hmm. robert's uh personal life is now being affected by his previous choices in terms of his party habits and stuff right and yeah 
Now we have this Jay Duplass character uh, yeah. coming in as this uh, hotshot investor that is like untouchable to all the banks, and that would be really interesting. Yeah, I'm really interested to see how that dynamic plays out between um, Eric and Harper and Harper and uh, Bloom, played by J.D. Plass, like you mentioned. Uh, I think I think there's a real like fatherly aspect, as you could kind of see when uh, Bloom, uh, you know, says to Robert when he's bringing Harper home after a night out, like, hey, I'm right here. Like, don't basically don't try anything. I'm listening through the wall to hear if anything goes on. And obviously, uh, Eric and Harper already have that dynamic. So I think there's going to be the the business side of things. Obviously, we see Harper choose not to pursue a, a business meeting that she has set up with Eric at the end of the episode in order to go listen to yes. Bloom's talk and pursue whatever opportunities come there. But I'm really interested to see how that all plays out for sure. And you have um, Yaz with this opportunity of like uh, in, investment or uh, wealth. Uh, management i guess is like the yeah. opportunity i was a little confused by exactly what that woman did but right. um, really interesting <laughs> stuff so is yes for most of the episode <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but yeah it feels like industry just hasn't missed a beat it's one of those shows that uh, i feel like well if, if people haven't found it yet people will continue to find and as long as it just keeps going man i think by the end people are gonna call this one of the better hbo shows of recent memory so yeah i agree why don't we uh, switch gears from HBO and TV to movies where Not Okay on Hulu dropped this past week. Uh, Dave, was this movie better than okay to you? That's a good question. I, re- I really wanted to talk about Not Okay just because it's been a light movie summer, bro. There hasn't been a lot of movies worth discussing. And when you get a Fox Searchlight movie handed to you via Hulu, you might as well check it out because they have a good track record. and They've actually been doing that a lot this year. We talked about Fresh with Sebastian Stan and Daisy Edgar-Jones. We didn't talk about Fire Island or Good Luck to You, Leo Grand, the Emma Thompson movie. So Searchlight via Hulu has been giving us a steady bit of uh, batch of movies this year so far, which is cool to see, I guess. Um, and the latest is Not Okay, which is a satirical comedy starring Zoe Deutsch. And you know, I went into it not really knowing what to expect. But I think it's an interesting movie for how it approaches its story. But yeah, mm-hmm. does it exceed beyond being okay? Probably not, honestly. But I think the fact that it's at least a bit atypical in the type of storytelling it is is something to admire. And I think Zoe Deutsch is, is very convincing as this character. She's honestly been, been really good ever since set it up, blew up on Netflix several years ago with Glenn Powell. I think she's a really winning performer. In this case, she's playing a not winning character, but I think it just kind of speaks to her, her talent. She, she's, she's quite charisma, uh, charismatic. Yeah, I agree. I think Zoe Deutsch is really good in this role. Um, I thought the movie was definitely effective in hammering home the cringiness of people who pursue fame without for the wrong reasons i guess was kind of what it was driving home about and i I think more than anything i I walked away from this movie not only impressed with deutsch's performance but also uh mia isaac who i can't recall seeing in anything before but 
I thought she was just really strong as Rowan in this. Uh, it, kind of and, a, a stand-in for some of those uh, survivors of the Parkland shooting that became active. Yes. That type of uh, character archetype. And um, I thought the setup of the movie was really clever. Um, and you just kind of see her continue to like lean into the lie and you're just like oh god like why are you doing this oh no uh like you just know it's gonna turn bad at some point and uh i mean there's there's certain things that i definitely could have done without the whole like colin dylan o'brien like stuff was like a little like it was funny like i I thought he was really funny in this like douchebag role basically um but also just kind of left me wondering like what was this trying to say um Mm. And, and the yeah. movie definitely ends at a point where it's trying to say something. I just don't know if it totally lands the plane on it. Um, but overall, I, I thought I thought this movie was okay. Yeah, th- this kind of reminded me of Mainstream, that Gia Coppola movie with Andrew Garfield we talked mm-hmm. about in 2020, where it's a movie trying to like say something about uh, young like Gen Z culture specifically. Yeah and not totally nailing it. I think this has a more accurate read on like just how those things work, you know? Um, and I think probably the best aspect about not okay is that the way it ends, it doesn't redeem uh, Danny Sanders, Billy Deutsch's yes. character. It doesn't redeem Danny and like let her off the hook really in any way at all, which mm-hmm. is uh, kind of the big flaw of Dear Evan Hansen. Right. As people would say, you know, it's like Danny is a scammer. She, literally admits it at the end that she didn't really learn anything from this and mm. in the, on the other hand it is a bit difficult to be with this character that you don't like immediately and you see how uh, oblivious or tone deaf she is about various things right across just having whether it's opinions or privilege or whatever it is right you you pick up on that all immediately and then this character actually has no growth at all for the most part yeah and you're kind of stuck sitting with that and thinking about like what that is and what you're supposed to feel about that. And that's what that's what I meant by like the kind of like atypical storytelling of not okay, because it's not often that you be with a unlikable protagonist and they don't redeem themselves in any manner like this. You know, it, it's it is supposed to be satirical and make you think about that. But do you, do you think it like goes far enough with that because you know, when we see the influencer party, when you know we've, we've seen with everything with Dylan O'Brien, like I don't know, like I feel like you kind of get the take, you get the lampooning like immediately, right? And then after that, like I don't know, I guess you're just kind of on for the ride. You know, maybe you don't have to think about it too deeply. Yeah, you know, I I watched it with a group of people, and um, at the end, everybody was just kind of like, "That's it." And I, I think that's kind of how I felt like it could have gone a little bit further. And that's why I don't know if it totally landed the plane. I really thought the spoken word piece at the end was really strong, but the movie almost ends like so abruptly that it's like, you know, you, it, it asks the audience to do a little bit more work. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I think like, I think I, I definitely got the message and, and really liked that. It wasn't just like, her like walking away crying and like we don't see her like learn anything we're just like oh she's just always going to be like this but i also just don't know if if it felt fully like baked in terms of how it was trying to get the message across i do 
also feel like this like uh, i guess it's supposed to be like a what like up rocks like buzzfeed environment yes uh, like perhaps distractify is the name yeah um it's this sorry no not distractify that's a real thing d- depravity d- depravity yeah, yeah. <laughs> d- distractify actually almost would have been better i think um it's this like similarly like kind of like half-baked like you have like these people there who at the beginning are like we're going to an lgbtq night and you can't come like like obviously just not liking her but like they're like kind of setting these characters up around there but none of them ever really get to do much except for colin who's like the douchebag on screen talent um and i and i guess not uh i don't know if her name is nadia nadia alexander is the uh, actress who you know approaches her and is like gonna out her lie like but none of them are fully formed beyond that i don't know i also thought the uh portrayal of a a vice buzzfeed s workplace was a bit uh 2015 whereas like it was almost like combining like tech company office with Mm. online journalism which is actually just not that accurate anymore Mm. if you understand the unfortunate economics of journalism these days it was like it's like ah, like this actually doesn't feel like a real right a, re- a real work environment at all, actually. Yeah. Um, nonetheless, you know, I think um, still, still, at least makes you think a little bit. You know, you get a get a Rico Nasty drop over some kickball. You get Avril Lavigne sing along. Like I said, Zoe Deutsch very likable. Dylan O'Brien mm-hmm. has many stands. Those people were happy. Even got my guy Karen Sony in a very thankless role as uh, Danny's fellow photo editor at the office. You know, he's like only a few lines, but yeah, it's uh, it's all, just all right, I guess. And I wonder what uh, the Searchlight strategy is since you know becoming owned by Disney in the Fox deal this year. They've released some stuff on Hulu. Obviously, I guess this is the stuff they acquire, but don't expect to be awards contender. So they put it out earlier in the year via Hulu. Just just a new uh, new strategy, I guess. But hey, I mean, like I said, there hasn't been a whole lot of movies of note the past <laughs> few months, so we gotta talk about them. Nope. When, when we get them. Yep. Exactly. Uh, I think that's gonna wrap it up for today, though, Dave. I don't really have any more thoughts on this. What do we got for next week? So next week, we actually do have some movies of note, thankfully. Hey! In theaters, we have Bullet Train, the Brad Pitt action movie, David mm. Leach, which I'm very excited about. And then we have a bunch of other stuff coming out on streaming all at the same time. Most notably would be on Hulu, Prey, the Predator prequel from Dan Trachtenberg, which is getting really well-received. We also have Apple's first foray into animation with Skydance Animation via Luck, which happens to be the comeback of John Lasseter since he left Pixar. A lot going on there. And then on Amazon Prime Video, we have 13 Lives, the Ron Howard movie about the, uh, I believe it was Thailand, the, the, the cave rescue over in Asia a few years ago and the race against time. Um, a lot of big name actors in that one. Very exciting. And also a trio of notable music drops calvin harris his first album in a while funk wave bounces volume two uh k-pop girls generation their comeback after several years hiatus and then on the afrobeat side of things fireboy dml who is not as big as burna boy but still a really huge artist out of nigeria who i like quite a bit so i think a lot of interesting stuff coming out this year before august goes more or less very quiet (laughs) yeah uh 
I'm glad we have some stuff to talk about. We're uh, we're a few weeks away from some major TV, which will buoy us for a bit, but it's always nice to have a couple movies pop up. So hit the subscribe on YouTube.com slash NostalgiaPod. Go to our Twitter at NostalgiaPod. Follow the link tree there to find the podcast in any format you want. And again, go to Sun- uh, sorry, go to Spotify and search Nostalgia Best of 2022 and follow our playlist there. Catch you next week. Yeah.